0: Hey there, before we dive into today's episode of Growing Pulse Crops, I have a very important request of you. This podcast is grant and commodity group funded, and so in order to continue doing this podcast, we need to demonstrate its impact. The way that we can do that, since you hear from us, but we don't often hear from you, is by offering an audience survey. This is extremely important so that we can quantify the impact this show is having and continue to fund it in the future. So please, just take a few minutes right now, pause this, and take our audience survey. The link is in the show notes. If you don't want to go to the show notes, you can find it at bit.ly forward slash pulses 2022 to get the exact link, please go to the show notes. But that audience survey is so extremely important to the future of the show. And we would be eternally grateful if you can please go take a few minutes to fill out that survey. Now, once you finish that, we always welcome a rating and review on either Spotify or Apple podcasts so that we can quantify your feedback that way as well. Thanks so much and enjoy today's episode. This is Growing Pulse Crops and I'm your host Tim Hamridge. Today on our final episode of season three. There's these short-term economic realities
1: that producers face and then there's these long-term conservation goals that all of us really feel are important but there's this conundrum that those sort of short-term economic realities and long-term conservation goals are difficult to align especially with the crops that are available to us as growers right now. My program at The Landscape focuses on perennial pulses and we're exploring various candidates and it's starting to work towards something that can kind of mimic a pea or a chickpea or a lentil, but be something that has living roots in the ground year round and going to make it through our winters and recover and, and always be there. So it's, it's kind of a plant
0: once and harvest many times type of deal. The Land Institute's Brandon Schlotman joins the show to talk about the work they're doing to breed perennial pulses. Brandon is the lead scientist for the Perennial Legumes Program at the Land Institute, which is based in Salina, Kansas the 40-year-old nonprofit ag research institute tries to find solutions that balance short-term economic realities with long-term conservation goals they're known for their work in kernza and hope to make similar progress in pulses as well brandon grew up in nebraska and went to the university of wisconsin-madison for graduate school where he learned about breeding perennial crops through his work with cranberry growers he then joined the land institute in 2016. Today, we talk about why developing perennial pulse crops is a worthwhile endeavor, where they started down this road, how they settled on Sainfoyne for the perennial pulse development, and the road ahead towards commercialization. First, though, I asked Brandon to give us some background on the Land Institute's perennial pulse crop program. I
1: guess when I got there, there had never been a perennial pulse or perennial legume program prior to that, but there had been researchers who had, had explored Different pulse species. There's a, a native perennial legume, Illinois bundle flower, that the Landsuit historically has done quite a bit of research on. You know, the other way that we use perennial legumes in my program and that the landsuit in general is thinking about them as, as sort of a perennial ground covers or companion crops, things that you can intercrop with your other grains, to hopefully fix a little bit better nitrogen. And, and as we think about these sort of crop livestock integrated systems, perhaps increase forage yields and quality. Um, and the sort of distribution of forage and quality throughout the growing season. Really, the the dedication to having a,
0: a perennial pulse, perennial legume program, I was the first person hired for that role. So when Brandon arrived at the Land Institute, one of his early challenges was to find the most promising perennial legumes to consider for commercial development. This open-ended task was the first step to eventually narrowing it down to a plant that he could work with.
1: You know, when we started, there wasn't necessarily any germplasm or even a crop that we were supposed to be working on. It was sort of a thought experiment, I guess, to figure out what directions we wanted to take. And one of the first projects we did was collaborate with a woman named Allison Miller. She's a researcher at the Donald Danforth Center in St. Louis, Missouri. And we had a project together where we actually, you know, looked through a bunch of databases in old flora and we wanted to try to know, so legumes are in the, the Fabaceae family. We, we wanted to ask the question, you know, in nature, what percentage of the legumes are annuals, are perennial herbaceous plants, or are perennial sort of woody trees, shrub type plants? And so that was a, a really interesting project. And, you know, we found out that there were, you know, 6,000 some perennial herbaceous species. We liked the idea of a perennial herbaceous legume. Because we can cut them off of the ground like a grass or alfalfa, et cetera, clovers, and they regrow every year. They're, they're not a woody plant. So that was sort of the, the type of species that we were interested in. So we, we narrowed down, you know, the, I think there's 20,000 or so legume species in the world. and We narrowed ourselves down to, to 6,000. And then, you know, there are other criteria you can start thinking about. If, you know, we're in the U.S., we want them to be temperate adapted. There's a lot of tropical legumes that, that can't overwinter here. There happen to be quite a few legume species that have, as we know, anti-nutritional compounds and things like that. So we went through our list and, and sort of pared it down. And, you know, now we're working on, you know, really two that we've thought about working on, but one that we're, we're really interested in, and that's uh, Sainfoin, which is Onobrychis fischifolia. It's a species that's already been used for quite a while as a perennial forage legume throughout Eurasia. And even the the U.S. It's grown in parts of the Dakotas, Montana, Wyoming, into Canada, et cetera. But yeah, we we went through a sort of iterative process, looking at different species, trying to make decisions using criteria set whether they they would fit well or not. And uh, you know, one of the most important criteria, one of the reasons we chose sandfoin is that it's something that's already known and used. There's been enough sort of domestication that. You know, simple things that we take for granted, like you know, when you plant the seeds, we get somewhat even germination, and the seeds don't all fall off the plant right away, and things like that. Because people have been growing Saint Foyne for thousands of years, we've already got some of that initial domestication breeding type work done, and you know, the other critical parts of domestication are developing sort of a, an agronomy and understanding of what the best practices for growing that crop is, and I guess some of the social. Uh, development needs to happen, letting that crop become recognized and known by by the people that might grow it and the people that might consume it. So, St. Foin had already made quite a bit of progress on those those fronts.
0: One big plus about settling on St. is it actually is already grown in some areas as a commercial crop. So, we know we can grow it, but just as importantly, will people eat it? There are you know, a couple thousand acres of
1: production in the western part of the U.S., and I really like that there's a sainfoin seed industry already. We've talked with multiple growers in Montana that that they grow and clean seed and sell it to other producers mostly for forage production. So we we have some of this knowledge about how sainfoin can be grown and and how to how to do the seed production well. The eating it is the is the next step and so we're excited. We've been attending the Plant Protein Innovation Conference in Minnesota this winter and getting some food scientists on board, trying to understand sort of how to make it a functional food. Does it have any novel proteins that can be used in plant-based products? We've talked with some natural food companies who are interested in using it just as a a normal dry pulse that you'd package and put on shelves in grocery stores. We've boiled them a few times ourselves and done some sensory analyses, but one of the key steps right now is, you know, FDA has this thing called a generally regarded as safe ingredient list of crops or uh, crop, Products And that's one of our our big 2022 goals is to try to try to put a dossier together and, and uh, you know, demonstrate that same point is safe to eat. Some of the research we've done at this point, you know, we know that it's pretty high in nutritional quality. It's 35 plus percent crude protein and, and a good amount of oil, also six, six to eight percent. And the amino acid profiles look very promising, similar to a lot of our other pulse crops. And, you know, some of the other things that you look at, you know, is there a potential to accumulate heavy metals or anything like that? And so far, we haven't seen a lot of evidence of needing to worry about heavy metal accumulation, things like selenium, for example. Other legumes can't have that issue. We've been testing for mycotoxins and haven't really found anything to be concerned about at this point. There's the allergen question that exists for a lot of our pulses. We haven't moved into that area of research much at this point, but, you know, that's sort of the, Where we're at right now, we really, you know, open to working with any sort of food scientists, pulse um, researchers or uh, nutritionists that have any expertise in those areas. We'd love to kind of meet you and collaborate and, and hear your thoughts on interpreting the data that we have at this point and thinking about what other data needs to be generated as we, you know, move into the coming year or two.
0: And you heard Brandon earlier allude to the fact that they started by looking at thousands of potential perennial legumes. Then I had them skip straight to their primary focus, which, of course, is Sainfoin. But before we talk more about commercializing that crop, I wondered, uh, what were the runners-up? In other words, what were the plants that show potential that were also considered along with Sainfoin?
1: One of the crops I was really excited about, actually, Lupinus polyphyllus. We've got perennial native lupin species throughout sort of the, the Rockies and throughout the Western Pacific Northwest. And Lupinus polyphyllus is one of these species that has already been used. It's, it's sort of the ornamental lupin that we see. You might have heard of it referred to as the sort of Russell lupin. And because it has a presence in the ornamental industry, breeders have been selecting it, for example, to have more flowers and bigger flowers. And, you know, more flowers often leads to Higher seed yields, and and sometimes we can have bigger seeds and pods, just because of the way they look. And so, there's been efforts to to work on that species, and uh, there was a group in in Europe that's been looking at trying to reduce the alkaloid content of these lupins. And there are uh, actually wide hybrid crosses between lupinus polyphyllis and another South American lupin, lupinus metabolus, which is the species that the Incan Empire Domesticated and it was sort of their their pulse crop, you know, hundreds of years ago, and so that was something I thought was really promising. And we've planted it a few times in Wisconsin and other farther northern areas. But in Kansas, where I'm located right now, it seems like the the heat gets to it. It's not something we've had a lot of success growing in the ground. In the greenhouse, we do okay, but it's it's something I think is also another promising crop that uh, the right person in the right location could could do some great things with.
0: But settling on sainfoin is just one of the many challenges of bringing this new crop to market. Once Brandon narrowed his focus on sainfoin, the work began to develop the crop to someday be commercialized. Sainfoin's pretty, I guess, somewhat unique. It's a single-seeded pod.
1: And when you harvest it, it stays in the pod. So it runs through the combine, comes out, and it's stored with the pod. So thinking about how to remove that pod in an efficient way is is important. We've we've used spelt deholers and belt uh, threshers and things like that with with some success on a on a smaller scale. But I think that's a a key next step. You know, one of the big motivations behind having perennial pulses and in, in perennial grains in general is is thinking of it through the ecosystem services that they might provide, and so you know something that you know our our kind of midterm, longer term goals are are really getting robust estimates of uh, the nitrogen fixation potential of sainfoin, depending on where we grow it and how we grow it. Sort of the carbon sequestration potential, understanding a little bit better if sainfoin and to what extent sainfoin limits runoff and and soil loss to erosion. Those are really important questions that still need to be answered and we imagine are are gonna be a lot of the motivation between some food companies including Sainfoin in their product lines. So other supply chain issues are simply learning how to to grow at scale and to teach growers how to grow it. There's small numbers of growers who are Sainfoin seed producers right now that have a lot of knowledge. And you know, whether that knowledge is is easily transferred to other growers is something that we'll have to learn. We aren't sure at this point how, uh, whether whether initial marketplace would be sort of the natural food industry and, and whether it'd be a big push for sort of organic production or whether conventional production can happen right away also. So thinking through the differences in the management practices for the, both of those systems will be, be something else that's pretty important. One benefit of Sainfoin that, you know, we are excited about is the Potential to integrate it into crop livestock systems, where you know perhaps we're producing a sainfoin pulse crop that's harvested in you know mid to late summer, and the regrowth is available either for grazing or or perhaps even haying in certain environments over the winter, and allows us to to have a little bit more diverse income streams off the same field. And sainfoin is uh, insect pollinated; it's a great honey crop that could provide some opportunities, you know, another source of revenue for growers, but it could also provide some challenges in thinking through how important those pollinators are and if new growers are going to need to, you know, learn how to manage those pollinators themselves or create sort of the supply chain of, you know, from the bee industry, getting, getting bees delivered at the right times of the year to fields across different parts of the U.S.
0: Well, it's by no means going to be an easy road, but Brendan believes all of this is worth the effort. I asked him to explain his vision for what's possible in a future that includes commercially grown perennial pulses. Yeah, so you know, we think about the
1: perennial grain dream, you know, our founder West Jackson kind of coined this term nature as measure. I think that's really the impetus for this effort to create these perennial crops that that are really resilient in the, you know, grand scheme of things that right now we might call them brittle rather than resilient cuz we're just developing them and we don't really understand all the management practices we haven't really gone through the the heavy breeding efforts that we need to be able to plant them you know the way we might plant chickpeas and things like that where where we know as long as we follow a certain number of steps things are going to going to turn out right but we can envision that you know someday under uh you know improved varieties and and well-known management practices that these perennials are are very resilient in terms of what sort of inputs they're going to require. We we think about sainfoin for example as a nitrogen fixing perennial legume species, something that, you know, we can harvest sustainably or regeneratively from a landscape we're, we're mo- removing this protein-rich seed, this nitrogen-contained seed from an environment where you know, ideally, the amount of nitrogen that the staphyloids bringing into the field through fixation every year is matching the the output, and I think that's sort of the dream for perennial agriculture in general is that we somehow balance sort of the the inputs with the export of the system. We're reducing our dependence on on herbicides to manage weeds in a in a field where these perennials are are much more competitive and reduce you know emergence and competition from annual weeds. We're definitely critically reducing the soil disturbance on an annual basis reducing soil disturbances is, is really the key to the whole system reducing runoff and wind erosion also depending on our region you know those are really important challenges that that affect the long-term productivity of our cropping systems and sort of the are the impetus for a lot of the environmental challenges you, we we see around the US so especially you know, we look at the Corn Belt region and the amounts of soil we lose to erosion on an annual basis. Still, due to our tillage practices, and it's it's not only about reduced productivity in those fields, but we trace sort of the the route that that soil ends up taking through water systems all the way into you know the Gulf of Mexico. We look at sort of the hypoxia and other you know the the dead zone that that's happening there. Those are all sort of to some extent have have their start in agriculture in the way we currently practice it and perennials can reduce soil erosion by having them every year we can reduce the disturbance event that we need to plant our new crop and disturbances can be tillage disturbances can be sort of the herbicide pass that lets us no till into the to the crop that preceded it perennials are going to be there uh, i think that's the best best part about the whole deal
0: So the hope is that something like this will find a premium market, reduce soil disturbance, and thrive on minimal inputs. But what about yield? All of these benefits cannot be realized unless it can produce enough to be economical. That was one of the things
1: that attracted me to Sainfoin. When we look at yields that growers are getting right now, a lot of these Sainfoin seed producers are are already getting, you know, 500 to 1,000 pounds of seed per acre on average, which is somewhat comparable lentils right now. So if you look at Montana, for example, lentils have averaged, I don't know, 1,200 pounds an acre, somewhere around there. And so that's kind of exciting to me, you know, for this crop that really has had little to no selection for increased seed yield. You know, in the right environments, we can probably get close to yield parity with with lentils. The focus of the breeding program that I run is is increasing seed yields. And, and we hope that we're making good progress in that endeavor, but we're probably still, you know, I would say six to eight years away from really releasing the first improved variety in terms of, of seed production. We we really envision that this this sort of sane foin supply chain can get started using existing, often publicly available varieties that are hitting that, you know, five to 800 pounds per acre range. Assuming there's going to be at a
0: premium for this product over, over something like lentils in general. For farmers that might be listening that are used to rotations of annual crops, I wanted Brandon to explain a little bit more about how a perennial pulse might fit into a rotation.
1: Well, you know, thinking about where we're growing it and fitting it in with some of the other small grains production or, you know, the land we have a intermediate wheatgrass kernza crop that we're developing. You can imagine there being sort of a nice Rotation, maybe three to five years of seine and that we rotate into our new perennial cereal grain Pernza for another three to five years. That's a nice rotation. I like that three to five year interval because hopefully these new crops we're, we're developing new varieties that are gonna have, you know, quite a bit of yield advantage and you you're gonna wanna move to new things. But when we think about the longevity of these crops in general, you know, I was at a field in Montana, the guy had a uh, Shoshone, Sainfoin variety that had been under irrigation growing for 17 years now. And and you could see the original rows that he planted with the drill. Sainfoin doesn't have the same autotoxicity issues that alfalfa has. So if seed does fall to the ground, it can kind of reseed itself and, and fill it in. And so I think, you know, those longevity questions are going to be hard hard to answer until we really get good data on, you know, our yield stability over time. Do we see Ourselves able to maintain yields in that sort of five to 800 range for six, seven years in a row? Or do we see a trend of declining yields after the first couple of years? And, uh, you know, as we think about cost of inputs and things like that, I think producers doing the math themselves and deciding okay, when is it really time to rotate out of these systems? And I'm guessing it'll be different across regions and under, you know, irrigated versus dryland production, et cetera.
0: And like a lot of things that are new in agriculture, there's a temptation to get excited about the potential here. But Brandon is also very cautious about wanting to make sure the work gets done to set things up for success. Commercialization, after all, takes time. We have a lot of growers that are motivated to find
1: new ways that they can be both profitable, but contribute to some of our long-term conservation goals we, we mentioned earlier in the show. And it's important that, you know, my program and those involved in sort of the creation of Sanefoin as a pulse crop in general, do our best to make sure that we are setting those growers up for success. And that success is is going to be determined by there being demand for their their crop. And uh, there's a big risk, I think, in us saying, okay, guys, we have this new Sanefoin variety. It's got great seed yields, equal to lentils go ahead and plant it and not have done the due diligence to make sure that our food companies know about sainfoin they're ready to receive it. They've done the R&D to understand what sort of products we can put it into, how they're going to receive it and process it, etc. And so I think there's going to need to be sort of a, a slow commercialization process where there's a handful of growers that try it out and hopefully the majority of them are successful. But they're gonna to have to do things differently. They might end up having to hold a crop for a year looking for buyers who are ready to receive it. You know, there's this chicken and egg challenge where, you know, these big companies are gonna want a certain amount of supply promise before they'll commit to it and, and kind of thinking through the logistical challenges of and the tactical sort of strategies to to make those line up is not something that's gonna just happen immediately. So our goal is to really to get a couple of growers started in the next next year or two years and see how it grows and hopefully really focus on some of this protein functionality utilization type of work so that, you know, when we know and we understand how sainfoin can be used, we can start ramping up production.
0: Well, thank you so very much to Brandon Schlottman for sharing on the show today. Learn more about their work with sainfoin at www.landinstitute.org. We'll make sure we link to that in the show notes as well. Well, that's it for Growing Pulse Crops season three. Special thank you to Dr. Audrey Kalau and Dr. Claire Keen, who co-produced this season and found all of these wonderful guests that you heard from. So if you see either of them, make sure you say thank you. What would you like to hear from us next year? Please take a few minutes to complete our listener survey. That link again can be found in the show notes to today's episode. It's bit.ly forward slash pulses 2022. It won't take you much time at all, and it's essential for the future of the show. Please find that link in the show notes and take that survey right now. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, the USA Dry P and Lental Council, and the North Central Extension Risk Management Education Program. If you found this podcast useful, we'd love it if you'd not only fill out our listener survey, but also leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And feel free to tweet us at any time by using the hashtag GrowingPulseCrops. We'll be back with another fantastic season next year.